Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Hello, and welcome to this Our Changing World podcast from RNZ National, presented by Alison Balance and Veronica Maduna. First, Parkinson's disease. Most of us are familiar with how the condition affects movement and the sense of balance. But many people with Parkinson's also develop cognitive impairments, including difficulties with processing information and reading special clues. It's not clear how, when or even if a person with a condition will experience any of these symptoms. But brain scientist Tracy Melzer hopes that MRI scans will help pinpoint early changes in the brain. I meet Tracy at the New Zealand Brain Research Institute in Christchurch to find out more about the search for these early signals. Most people will know of Muhammad Ali or Michael J. Fox, who are probably two of the most famous people to have um, developed Parkinson's disease. And some of the first things that you'll see will be uh, resting tremor. So you'll, have, you'll see a tremor in the hand, for example, um, really slow movements, shuffling gait, essentially just difficulty with moving. But that's not all there is to it? No, that's not um, all there is to it. And that was essentially how Parkinson's was treated up into about a decade ago, when people started to realize that there are many other non-motor problems in Parkinson's that the people with Parkinson's disease will experience. One of the most common and probably one of the most burdensome aspects is cognitive impairments and ultimately dementia. Uh, And that's what we're particularly interested in here. Does the dementia or those cognitive problems manifest in a way similar to other conditions of the brain or age-related conditions of the brain? Yes and no is the answer to that. So uh, yes, in that it is a gradual process. So you don't wake up one day and have dementia. You know, it's a a long-term, very slow process, and that would be similar to other degenerative disorders where it doesn't happen overnight, like Alzheimer's disease. Um, But it is slightly different in that the the cognitive impairments, the different domains that we see affected, are not necessarily the same domains that you would see in, for example, Alzheimer's disease. So most people know that in Alzheimer's disease, um, you'll see that associated with memory problems. Well, you can get memory problems in Parkinson's, and you do, but most of the time it's not the defining cognitive problem that you see in Parkinson's. So in Parkinson's, you can see what we call executive function. So decision-making, processing information can be slightly affected. Um, We also see what we call visual-spatial problems. So that's, you know, uh, orienting yourself in the world and and understanding what you're seeing, as well as attention can be affected in Parkinson's as well. So difficulty with attention. So we can see similarities, but they are distinct forms of dementia. And it's that part of it, the cognitive impairment, that you're particularly interested in. Does everybody with Parkinson's get that? We do know that the majority of people with Parkinson's will develop dementia over the course of their disease, but not everyone. But the problem that we see and the problem that most clinicians and and patients see is that that dementia may happen anywhere from two years after diagnosis of disease to 20 years or even 25 years or perhaps even never. And we don't know who will develop dementia when. Right? So that's the real problem for us. So even once you've been diagnosed with Parkinson's, 
there's no way of telling what suite of symptoms you'll develop over time. That's correct. And that's one of the, the difficult aspects of Parkinson's disease. So we know in general what Parkinson's disease is. Um, but when you look at an individual and that person's being diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, it's very difficult to pin down exactly what will happen in the course of the disease. So what were you doing here with that question? You've got a number of people who've already been diagnosed. That's correct. So here we're particularly interested in cognitive impairments and dementia in Parkinson's disease. So one way that we have uh, attempted to attack this question is we've set up a, a large longitudinal study. And this longitudinal study started by looking at a group of patients with Parkinson's disease, uh, looking at all across the what we call the full spectrum of cognitive impairments. So looking at patients who have normal cognition, patients who are just starting to show signs of impairment, what we call mild cognitive impairment, and some patients who had full-blown dementia. And then what we decided to do was uh, use MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, to scan these individuals. And what we've continued to do is follow them at approximately two-year intervals. Um, we're now up to about six years after the first time we've seen them. Uh, and the idea will be to use not only the cognitive information that we've gathered um, throughout this study, but also the MRI, those, those um, high-resolution brain images, to see if we can pick up any information about what's happening in the brain um, with cognitive impairment or actually attempt to identify any changes in the brain which will predict later development of, of dementia. So some sort of biomarker in the brain or something? We like to use the word biomarker, this is true. So we'd really, we really would like to be able to identify the, the biomarker, something in the brain that we can measure with MRI, which tells us about future cognitive state, tells us about the risk of that individual developing dementia in the near future, or whether that person is not at risk of developing dementia in the near future. In the first instance, if you have images of people's brains when they have the mortal control issues and then people who might have some cognitive impairment and people with dementia, is there any difference in just that comparison before you even get into the longitudinal following of one individual? You know, can you see what goes on when people have or haven't got cognitive impairment? Yes, yeah, so if you look at what we call the group level, so if you look on average at an individual with Parkinson's disease and normal cognition, their brains look pretty similar to individuals of the, of the same age that don't have Parkinson's disease. But if you look at the individuals with more cognitive impairment, a group of patients with dementia, you can start to pick up um, quite striking changes in the brain. So we can see uh, less tissue in the brain, we can see changes to blood flow, and we can also ch see changes to the white matter or the, uh, the areas which connect the different regions of the brain. So you can start to see differences there in the group with dementia. However, when you are looking at a single individual scan, we're back to the same problem where it's quite difficult to pick up these subtle differences and be able to look at an individual scan and say, this person has mild cognitive impairment or this person does not have mild cognitive impairment. So at the very extreme end, once you get to someone who has had dementia, you know, they've had Parkinson's for 30 years and they've had dementia for, for 15, normally you can see differences. But that's the extreme case. And in many cases, you can't visually see differences. So that's the reason why we're using sophisticated computer statistical analysis to try to pull out those individual-based differences. Can you talk me through some of that and actually show me how you do it? Yeah, I'd love to show you how we do some of those things. Hey. Hello. Hi. Oh, so, so this is this is the front room, right? 
this is what we call the control room. So you can see Ange, who's sitting there. She's, um, she's an MR technologist, and so she's actually running the scanner. What she'll be doing is, is setting up the different types of scans, uh, positioning what we actually want to take a picture of, for example, uh, and the different types of scans that we'd like to acquire for a particular use. So the patient in there will have headphones on? Yes. Uh, we usually have both ear earplugs and headphones. I like to go in there with earplugs and headphones because it is very loud. You've been through it a few times? I've been through it. For the purpose of the study or are you a control person? Uh, I use myself as a test for any new sequence that I want to run or um, to test reliability of sequences and things. I've been in there a lot. So this is actually the, the presentation, the stimulus presentation computer. So when we are doing a functional task, this is the, uh, the computer where we run our task. That's connected to some MRSAVE goggles which are in the room there, and so those can be placed on top of the, the head coil, which is where your head goes to be scanned, and so that you can actually look at these goggles and see whatever is displayed on the, on the screen. So let um, me take you away from the, the noisy bit here and just find out a bit more about that. So in most cases, what you were explaining before, you're taking brain scans, so the, the person in there doesn't have to do anything other than have the brain scan taken. That's correct. On a number of our scans, we can actually put music on. So especially when we're looking at structural scans, we're not looking at function of the brain. We usually ask them what their favorite radio station is, which I'm sure will be radio and set. <laughs> would have to be. <laughs> would, uh, would obviously be that. Um, or we you know, have them bring in some music of their own. But on a number of the scans, um, we have to turn the music off because we can actually see the effect of listening to music. So we really don't want to be looking at the effect of music. We'd rather be looking at the, uh, the effect of disease, for example, or trying to look at the effect of disease. So we'll turn the music off. And on some of the scans, we'll get them to look at a cross just so we know they're not falling asleep. Or, you know, and we observe. We, we can look at their eye so we know that they're not falling asleep, and, as well as and the, it, the functional scans where we actually yeah, get them gonna, to do a task. Yeah, and with some people, obviously, you put them through a functional MRI where they have to. What do they do? Well, that really depends on the question. I work with one uh, researcher, Dr. Tony Pitcher, who is uh, quite interested in anxiety in Parkinson's disease. So what she is looking at is... Which is also one of the symptoms that can or can not... Which can or cannot appear in Parkinson's is, uh, is anxiety. That's correct. And so she's quite interested in that and what happens in the brain with anxiety in Parkinson's disease. And so one of the tasks that she is looking at is she uh, presents the participants with some faces and these faces show some sort of emotion whether that be anxiety or happiness or feeling sad or surprise or disgust or what have you um, and we get them to look at those images in the scanner and decide what emotion is actually being displayed and then they have to respond and so then we can actually look at what's happening in the brain when they are uh, responding to those particular faces or, or trying to process the different types of emotion. The analysis of the images that you get as a result of all of this, you mentioned earlier that visually you don't always see a difference, so there must be sophisticated data analysis in the backdrop of that. Yeah, that's, that's correct. So what we're looking for are very subtle differences or very subtle changes that we see on the MR scans. So we do have uh, a very large, what we call pipeline, processing pipeline. So there's a lot of processing of the images that we need to do to get them to a state when we can then actually pre perform the analysis that we would like to perform. That requires a lot of processing power, uh, a lot of time, uh, and some sophisticated algorithms. Do you have any leads what you're looking for? You know, back to this biomarker, mm -hmm. is there any 
hints that you have what you are actually looking for? Because the end result when you have dementia, there's obviously loss of brain cells and loss of brain tissue. But if you were to try and predict whether or not this is going to happen, what are you looking for? We do expect to see, at the very end stages, we do expect to see, as you said, loss of tissue, you know, death of cells and therefore loss of tissue. But one of our hypotheses is that probably happens quite late in the disease process. One of the hints that we are particularly interested in is looking at functional blood flow. So the amount of blood flow that arrives at a particular area of the brain, you could imagine, would be quite important. I mean, if you don't get blood to the particular area of the brain, it's probably not going to be working quite as well, and when it does not work, you know, so just as this big cascade that may ultimately end in death and loss of tissue. So we found some very interesting results with the blood flow showing some differences across the groups, and we're now looking at that over time. Uh, you know, as I mentioned uh, with the longitudinal study, looking to see what happens to blood flow over two, four, and now six years. Um, and we think that that actually may be an early indicator that someone is uh, at risk for developing dementia or at least um, showing worsening cognition. And do you know what might cause the changes in blood flow? I mean, is it in any way related, if you look at the susceptibility of people to develop Parkinson's, is that in any way related to other conditions that come with changes in um, blood flow and I'm thinking of all those you know cardiovascular conditions well that's a that's a very good question because we've just started to look at that we do have a one scan which is good at looking at um, vascular injury uh, and what we've found is uh, we see vascular injury in the general population in the in the aging population especially uh, associated with cardiovascular risk factors you know so with high cholesterol and high blood pressure and those things, you can actually see these small vascular lesions happening. But what we've actually seen in Parkinson's disease uh, is that we see these things happening at an increased rate above and beyond what you would expect in healthy aging. So that's just another reason why we think this vascular component or the blood flow component could be uh, one of the things that we need to look at first, or could be one of the first biomarkers. So if you were to discover something like that, what could you do? The reality is we currently don't have any magic bullets for curing dementia in Parkinson's or in Alzheimer's for that matter. But the goal of our research is if we were to find something that did indicate which individuals were at high risk for dementia and which were not at high risk for dementia, the idea is that we would then slot that into the new pharmaceutical trials. So there's always new pharmaceutical trials happening. There's always new interventions, be that exercise intervention or cognitive enrichment interventions which are happening. And the idea would be if we can identify those individuals based on an MR scan who are at an increased risk for developing dementia, we slot those into the new study. Um, but equally important, those that are not at risk for dementia, we don't enter into those studies. And we do that for a few reasons. One is those individuals may not respond to the treatment and therefore may mask any beneficial treatment effects that may actually exist. But the other reason, and potentially even more important, is that we know these new pharmaceuticals will probably have some side effects. And we don't want to expose those individuals who may not have the benefit as well. Exactly. So that's essentially where we're, we're pushing, where we think these MR-based biomarkers uh, would help out, would be in treatment and uh, drug trials, in identifying patients to what we call enrich the sample. That was Tracy Melzer, a research fellow at the University of Otago and the New Zealand Brain Research Institute in Christchurch, which is part of Brain Research New Zealand. That's all for now. For more, check us out on the web. 
rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Matewa. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.